Welcome to the Show Me The Money podcast, Unlocking Property Finance. Join us on an exciting journey into the world of property finance, where we uncover secrets, strategies, and opportunities that can turn your property dreams into a lucrative reality. Welcome to Show Me The Money, Unlocking Property Finance. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Show Me The Money. Unlocking Property Finance with myself, Rose Sharma, and Mark Champ of Wharf Financial. Um, today, we're, we're super excited to introduce um, our, our guest to everybody, somebody who many of you may have uh, heard of already or before or may even worked with, Tarek Mubarak. Tarek, would you, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Would you like to just give everybody a quick introduction, uh, let everybody know who you are and, and what it is that you do? Yes, uh, thank you very much for having me on. So uh, I've been a qualified solicitor for over 20 years, far far too long, obviously. Uh, and for majority of that, we've also been uh, buy-to-let, uh, we being my wife and myself, we've been buy-to-let landlords as well. We've done some property trading in the past and we're getting back into it. Uh, we've done small-scale development in terms of, you know, planning uplift stuff like that on the on the legal side uh my client base tends to be generally sme property developers so building anything from uh ground up stuff from one or two units right up to to 25 units uh and uh, a lot of that also includes conversion of uh, existing stocks or offices into resi and the pd uh and also asset management work as well so <clears throat> i have a number of clients who um just long-term investors who will buy stock, do asset active as, asset management. Uh, and on the other end, um, I have a number of restauranteer clients as well as uh, occupational tenants. So that's a whirlwind tour of my 20 plus years of experience. Fantastic. Well, there's a, a lot of very relevant experience there. So lots of topics which we can delve into building upon that experience. So Mark and I put this podcast together very much to help our listeners who are exactly the sort of people you work with to understand what it is that goes on behind the scenes uh, and how to make their journey of unlocking property finance a little bit more efficient because you know even myself as a developer I'm always learning or we're always learning all of us but there's always new things and nuances when it comes to drawing down money that other hoops that lenders make us jump through and just helping to understand what it is that the lenders or the solicitors are asking certain questions or need to know certain things about how deals are put together and obviously combined with uh, Mark's many years of of, of um, brokeraging and putting these finance deals together, you know, this this will make for a really interesting conversation. Um, so I've got my first question then to, to Tarek, um, what sort of changes are you seeing in legal processes or legal requirements that lenders have upon borrowers when an application um, is is in, in flight, um, so uh, I think from a, from a lender's perspective, um, a few key things have been sort of bubbling around, bubbling you know in the background. The the most important one being uh, anti money laundering AML compliance. Um, they want to really understand where the funds are coming from, uh, how those funds have been generated, uh, who they've been generated by. Uh, and how they're going to be deployed. Um, and in the ordinary course of uh, borrowing money that's you know fairly straightforward, if you're a traditional buy-to-let landlord, uh, you would have uh, bought a property, perhaps added some value to it, 
over time it's increased in value and you're refinancing and releasing some equity and therefore that's your source of funds to go and fund the next purchase and so on and so forth. But a lot of times when you're doing, say, property development, you're taking on board investors or joint venture partners. And that's when, you know, complications start to creep in because you're now having to prove not only your own uh, source of funds, but also the source of funds of your JV partners or investors. Uh, and where, for example, the funds are coming via a SaaS fund, there's a lot more uh, hassle to try and collate the, that evidence. But it is something that's, you know, um, fairly important to do, especially when we live in a Russia-Ukraine environment and sanctions where the list of countries where uh, the source of funds is a little bit questionable, seems to be expanding every month. Uh, it's important to have your ducks in a row when you're you're establishing or proving your source of funds to your lender. That's that's a big thing for a lot of lenders, uh, but also who they're dealing with, you know, the, 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 the basics of KYC uh, documents and stuff like that. KYC is know your client or know your customer uh, and trying to identify who they are, who they're dealing with. And again, there you might some have some complications where, for example, you're bringing in investors from abroad and it's not so easy to verify ID electronically uh, with uh, you know investors who are uh, who are coming from abroad. So some those are some of the things that I'm seeing in terms of the legal side. Um, we're seeing a lot of friction, I would say, but I would say that because I I'm experiencing it uh, in terms of getting all of your documentation. Uh, uh, very accurate. So, for example, where there's been change in uh, shareholdings, where you've you've had an investor before and they've left, and you've taken on new investment, uh, then proving uh, the documentation is there. All your articles and memorandum are all in order. All your uh, resolutions have been kept up to date, including share registers, directorship registers, all of that stuff. Some lenders, or specifically their solicitors, are quite pedantic about. So. Um, it the 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 requirements seem to be getting more rather than uh, rather than less. And you know, I would add to that with with the lending side of things, when when you take an investor finance on, if they are based overseas, the the investor it, it does wipe out a lot of lenders. A lot of lenders, um, their criteria won't allow you to take uh, overseas investment in. So even if you get to to the stage where you, a lender has been uh, identified as suitable, then it has to go through the legal process, and it's not easy. I I had one where we had a lady. She she had her money come into her two years previous uh, through a, a, a claim from an accident she'd had, and she was a. Um, a lady who was more advanced in years. So she was very conscious of only keeping £85,000 in one account. So this money was moved from one account to another account to another account. And that obviously doesn't look good from a, a money laundering perspective. But it, she did it because she was trying to be cautious. But having to follow the source of funds throughout a two-year period and saying, well, this money was moved here because of this reason at this time. And it is... It takes ages to do, and it's uh, it is really difficult. But the lenders need it, and it's a necessary um, part of the process. 
But also, I think that there, there seems to be a degree of duplication of some of that work as well. Because what I find, the, the most recent example we, we've completed on our refinance, um, this particular client, I have trusted advisor status with. So I get copied into a lot of the emails even before it, be, it gets into the legal process. And a lot of that source of funds, KYC information, all of that was provided during the initial proposal phase itself. And then is repeated yeah. by the lawyers for the exact same thing. You would think that, well, couldn't you just have passed, Mr. Lender, could you not have just passed it on to your lawyers rather than getting us to repeat all of that? Now, it just so happens that because I had been copied into those initial emails, uh, all of that ends up in my file. And so it's quite easy for me to just extract all of that in my PA to then just send it out to the solicitors. And so therefore, the client doesn't actually need to duplicate that process. But usually, you don't have that relationship where you're copying in your solicitor before it actually is a there's an offer right but i think when when there is a level of duplication like this you might want to actually consider doing it getting your lawyer involved uh fairly early on uh and building that relationship so that you know at, on this one example alone uh that you you eliminate some of that duplication yeah i totally agree That's with a, that and yeah. what, what i'll just say on that there's um, a lot of people who don't have lawyers when they start the process and then exactly. when it comes, yep. yeah, when it comes to the, the the part where legals need to be instructed, they ask, they generally ask us, the broker, who would you recommend to be your lawyer? And it would have been so much better if they'd asked us that question right at the start, because we like to involve the lawyers and the accountant and whoever else needs to be part of that team to to work. And it always works so much better when the lawyer, the broker, the accountant, they all know each other. And they know what they're looking for. So automatically the customer just goes to the cheapest rate and says, right, I'm on the cheapest rate. This is what we're going to do. But it's not all about that. You need the whole the holistic view of the transaction to make it go through smoothly and avoid mistakes and costs and, and errors that can happen. So, yeah, totally agree with what you're saying. Get the lawyer involved. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. And actually, just before Tarek, sort of um, started talking on that I was actually just about to ask but you know who is actually responsible for doing this work sometimes and both both parties are and at different stages so yeah ultimately for me as a borrower I've certainly experienced that where there has been that huge amount of duplication so I guess recognizing that there is always that risk of duplication I guess there are certain things always borrowers can do to at least make the process as efficient as we can, such as perhaps having, you know, um, shared drives or the, the relevant documentation in them that we can share earlier. Um, having said that, I have had some sister firms I've worked with that said, we, you know, for compli internal compliance reasons, we can't use Dropbox and things. You have to send them each individually to by email, and then you've got to send it to somebody who then has to process it and look at it who's who doesn't look at it for a while. So I guess... There's always these these um, potential sources of, of delays, which, uh, and admittedly, as borrowers, we always say, oh, it's the solicitors. The solicitors are holding everything up. So what else can we as borrowers do? Because I guess, Tarek, you work really on – well, tell us a little bit about the work you do. Do you do work on uh, behalf of lenders as well? I guess you do for um, you know for, for term – term products or term loans and mortgages but when it comes to bridging and development finance tell us a little bit about the, the the role that you play in that and you know sometimes what sort of challenges we can expect from the from the counterparty in terms of the the other legal um, firm that are involved and how 
I think it's good for borrowers to understand how that dynamic works out as well so that we can anticipate where bottlenecks can be or where there might be an opportunity to streamline the process or be better prepared as well. Yeah, so I on the lending side, I do act for a number of um, private finance uh, lenders effectively, uh, but also some bridge lenders. And, and within my, my firm, uh, my colleagues act for quite a number of um, uh, bridge lenders, including Together, North Oak, and, and so on and so forth. So we're, our real estate finance team is, is pretty strong. Uh, and, and we'd like to think that, you know, we, we kind of understand that side of things quite well. I think um, one of the things that I tend to, <laughs> to usually find is that the client here, the lender, uh, will usually say, right, we've offered this term. Uh, here's the term sheet. Uh, off you go. <laughs> pretty much right and uh, so on the back of that we now need to get in touch with the borrower solicitor and say look here's our standard requirements uh, this is the term sheet we've been provided we're now on a on a fact finding mission in effect right because uh, whilst the client you know and, and I think this is more symptomatic of a private financier rather than a mainstream lender who've got established underwriting processes and will have captured a lot of this information so the the brief so to speak using the old parlance that would have gone to the lawyer would be much more thorough much more comprehensive but for a private financier they've they've had a chat on the phone say right I'm gonna lend him half a million pounds here are the terms. Um, now I want you to protect me essentially, and so me as the lawyer I have to go and find out. Well, what is the the transaction? What's the property being offered? On the back of that, you know, what is the security we can take? What about the company? Who's the borrower? Who's the directors? All of that information needs to be collated from scratch. And in a way, we're having to have a rather long shopping list because the information that we've received at the beginning is not completely. Uh, thorough, not comprehensive. And so we're having to figure all of this out in order to then realize, okay, fine, uh, on the back of this, this is what we think we should put in place, which is why usually now switching hats to the borrower side, I get this long list of requirements from a lot of lenders listers, and they're asking for stuff which isn't really relevant to the transaction. Now, I know it's re not relevant to the transaction because, for example, if it's a refinance, uh, I've acted on the purchase and the client's going through PD development, but the um, lenders list is asking for Section 106 agreement or something like that, which doesn't really apply on a PD, right? But at this point, the lenders list doesn't really know what to what to expect, what to ask for. So they ask for everything, essentially. And yeah. then it's a question of us just working through and filtering out and explaining why this doesn't apply, what have you. Now, I, I think the uh, switching back to the lender side hat on, uh, what I find sometimes is that a borrower solicitor is very dismissive about the replies to the information that we've asked for. So they're just like not applicable, not you know, n slash a not applicable, not applicable, and but not doesn't explain why it's not applicable. And as a result of which, you know, we're going to and fro quite a bit, and that causes a bit of friction. I think if we were to mm. just have sometimes just a quick conversation, say right, you said all of these things don't apply. Why don't they apply? And a quick five-minute conversation probably resolve a lot of it. We get a better idea of what the transaction is about, and uh, and then uh, you know we can move forward. But to your point earlier, Ro, I think a lot of times uh, when a solicitor has just been engaged by the borrower, who's not been engaged by that borrower before, so doesn't have the background information, doesn't have the full complete legal pack and what have you, things take longer because they've now received that list. 
they now need to go to the client, first of all, sorting out the KYC, all of that sort of stuff, because some firms apply KYC in a slightly different way, right? So mm. uh, my firm, for example, will accept um, uh, KYC from the client where they've just taken a picture of the passport and driving license and proof of address and emailed it to us. Um, some other firms will expect it to be done through something like Onfido or where it's electronic. Uh, I think it's Credo is the other one, which is a electronic ID verification app where you have to take selfies, take a video, all of that sort of stuff. Some other firms, especially those who act for lenders, will only accept a certified true copy by the borrower solicitor. In that situation, yeah. if they've only accepted a copy via email, they now need to receive the original documents into the office physically Bearing in mind, a lot of lawyers now work remotely. The lawyer then needs to go into the office, look at the original, take a copy, certify, and then send it to the lender's lister. So it just adds a bit of friction in that regard. Um, yeah. But they're also collating the documents for the first time from their client and putting all of that together in order to send it to the lender's lister. So the list of requirements has has grown as issues have uh, evolved and developed and what have you. And the amount of work that the borrower's lister needs to do is also uh, increased. But a lot of that is, you know, we we all kind of know, you know, as 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 uh, as as developers, uh, stuff happens. We get. For example, like if you look at planning permission, prior commencement condition has been approved. You get the email and then you just crack on with it. You don't actually then save it to the relevant folder, which is shared with the solicitor, which is then shared with the lender. So then when you're asked, when you're doing a refinance, you know, I'm sure you got that before. And then you're having to dig through your email inbox to find that particular approval and then send it off to the lawyer. And all of that collating, you know, it's still a very manual process. Whereas if I think... Yeah borrowers were a little bit more organized and as soon as something comes in this chucked into a relevant folder and that folder is shared throughout with the accountant the lawyer the broker i think things will be much more streamlined yeah uh, that's Sorry. a great point can i just ask you what do you prefer do you prefer it when you get a full pack or do you prefer it when things come in dealing with them as they come in because you know very very much the old school solicitors will only deal with the full pack if the full pack is not presented they're not dealing with it they're just not going to do it but i see it speeds things up when people deal deal with things as they come in i don't know what are your thoughts um it depends unfortunately is the answer now you would expect a lawyer to say that but it really does uh, depend i feel because i think for um, some individuals who are the tiktok generations they can you know they can switch between in tasks very, very rapidly. So they don't mind getting stuff piecemeal, work on this for five minutes and then write, okay, all the other stuff is outstanding. I'll move on to another matter. I'll move on to another matter and so on and so forth. Others, for example, would prefer, if I'm going to work on a matter, I want everything had to be there, ready, so that I can make the most amount of progress before moving on to the next sort of matter. And I think it kind of depends uh, on how some lenders, solicitors prefer to receive it in one go. Some others would prefer to receive it piecemeal so that they can show that they're making progress. Certainly, I think if I'm a lender solicitor, what I find is that if I'm receiving stuff piecemeal, I'm having to review, right, okay, here's the list of outstanding requirements, what has been satisfied, and then take them off. And then all the other stuff that hasn't been satisfied, resend to the borrower's list and say, can you please now send the rest of this stuff, right? So, it, it, and then if you're doing that five or 10 times, 
there's a lot of work involved. There's a lot of duplication yeah. of work. Rather than sit down for half an hour, all of this stuff has come in. You just tick off each one as you go. And then you have a very much shorter list of of things to to work through. So it it I think it depends on the lenders list. It depends on the borrowers list and how you kind of get along. And um, I you know I I've worked in both situations. I'm happy to do it either way, whichever whichever way the transaction prefers. I think it's a, it's a great question, and I think a lot of it quite often comes down to the fee that the that the borrower is willing to pay. Because I think you know if if somebody's going to be expecting a lot of work and going through documents through several iterations and where it's been drip fed in, then, you know, you could probably expect to pay a bit more because it's going to take a bit more, bit more time. And perhaps uh, some borrowers will go for the cheaper option where actually, you know, the price you're paying, that person's only going to look at it all in one go, uh, uh, you know, one sitting once it's all been submitted. Um, That's a really, really interesting, great question. And I think a really interesting viewpoint there. Um, so kind of kind of linked to that as well, actually, I wanted to ask um, paralegals. So a lot of firms use paralegals, right? So there's nothing worse than being asked as a borrower to submit a load of documentation right at the end of your um, of the process when you think you're getting close to the actual being able to um, exchange or, or draw down to be asked for a bunch of documentation again. And quite often, this happened to me, it's been because I've learned that you know, the person I've been dealing with or person who's been managing the, the, the application in the early stages is not the person that's actually reviewing and doing the sign-off. So tell us tell us a little bit about how that process works and how perhaps we can be a bit smarter as borrowers to not be uh, facing such a surprise at the end. So, okay, I, I'm going to set the scene slightly and give you a little bit of background. So, um, as we, do, you... we do need educating on this and that's why, yeah. you know, that, that's why it's good to have your perspective on this. So um, slightly different perspective, but it is linked. So uh, Ro, you, you might already know this, but I had my own firm uh, for 10 years before I sold it and then joined the current firm. Uh, and during that 10 years, there was a point in time where I wanted to scratch an itch, that itch being doing high volume uh, conveyancing. So we were doing 40 to 45 transactions completing a month. And that level of volume requires structures in place, teams in place, and a whole mm. set of process to go through mainly for quality control, but also to manage uh, the the workload effectively. And so as a result of that, you uh, tend to, so if you think, if you put yourself into the position of a patient in a hospital, you don't get seen by the, the head, the registrar, the head of the department on, on your at the first point of uh, visit. You're usually seen by a nurse, maybe an attendant first, and then a nurse, and then a senior nurse, and then you kind of move up the, the rank, so to speak. Then eventually your notes is complete, your patient file is complete, and then gets reviewed by the, the senior, the supervisor. And it's very similar in, in with legal. I think when you're doing volume of transaction, you need to start compiling the file uh, at a more junior level. So you'll have the paralegal who's got a, uh, who's had some training, who's been given a checklist, who's been given some guidance, and these are all the things that we need. And so once you com- collate all of that, before the file is uh, approved for uh, drawdown of funds, it needs to be reviewed by a supervising partner. So at the point when it's reviewed by a supervising partner, that's like uh, when the 
the experience and the fuller legal knowledge kicks in. And at that point, you identify, right, this might be an issue, that might be an issue. And then you have, right, go away, Miss or Mrs. Paralegal or Mr. Paralegal, and get me a list of all these other things. So, which is what, on your side as the borrower, you're saying, well, why are we getting, I thought we're done. I thought we're about to complete. I thought we're about to get the funds. Why am I now getting this long list of documents, right? It's because the file has been reviewed by a, yeah. By a by a legal boffin uh, with a bit more experience and who's identified the issue and say right you know we're we're missing something here the PGA hasn't been signed properly the ILA is missing a signature by the ILA solicitor and so on and so forth so um, the the paralegals got one checklist which they have to work to uh, and then the supervising partner then has their own sort of master checklist uh, coupled with experience to uh, to identify where the issues might be and and. Uh, and then you might be asked for further information for the documents. I think the 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 problem is if you were to change that model and not have the paralegal and just go for the super the solicitor. First of all, transactions will take a lot longer because you just can't get through the volume. And second, yeah. the the fees they are already expensive. I don't deny that, but they will be even more expensive because you're now having to get the. Uh, hopefully fairly experienced solicitor and you know uh, qualified solicitor doing even the, the document collation information collation right from the beginning right you know so kind of doesn't make sense in terms of resource allocation doesn't really sort of make sense in that regard so it, it, this the this approach of using the least um for one of a better term least qualified person to do the you know, work that doesn't require as much knowledge and as much experience uh, and then kind of working your way up towards the supervising partner still kind of works in, in the in the current climate. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really helpful to understand that. I mean, as frustrating as it is, it's it's a necessary pain in, in, the, in the whole kind of service provision. Uh, I, I get it. And I think it's definitely very helpful for our listeners to, to understand what goes on. And actually something which I've sort of done um in the past is i've just tried to get ahead of of that documents list as early as i can you know for example i know a lot of lenders um certainly for when it comes to getting out a mortgage for example um a lot of lenders on their sort of broker portal which i know we can access as well as as non-intermediaries as the borrowers quite often you'll find the checklist there of all the documentation that's likely to be required for the legal process even if you can't find that and i don't know if this is something you've done before mark with, your, with any of your clients and borrowers is to actually very early on get that legal checklist before you have to wait for the lawyers to send it to you so that at least we as borrowers can start collating as much of that information get it to like 80 90 of the requirement up front and if that's all shared up front obviously that helps to um helps to get ahead of the process not to that's not to say that it will necessarily be looked at but um that, that's something that can be quite helpful yeah. as well we send out checklists to our customers from the initial uh, introduction into them. So that that is the, the bog standard stuff that any lawyer is going to be asking for. We ask the customer, and they always say, oh, why are we providing this now? Well, it's so that we can get you your money as quickly as possible, which is what generally you usually want and what you moan about the most when it doesn't happen. So, yeah, give us the right information early, and then we can, we can get the process moving for you. So... Yeah, what you're saying is really, really important. And I think um, whatever you can do to save time with uh, a, a lender solicitor um, is, is really, really important. 
something um something else that you talked about earlier on Tarek, was the way you interact with the um the counterparty or the, you know, the solicitor on the other side <clears throat> we know that everything has to be in writing and recorded but how often do solicitors actually just pick up the phone and talk to each other because it um certainly some of the, some solicitors that i've worked with there's, there's been a heavy reliance on on written communications but sometimes you just need that that you know that voice conversation between the two parties to build that rapport and and unblock situations how does that tend to work in your experience I think the answer, the short answer to your question is is, is not enough. Uh, you know, I think lawyers don't pick up the phone and speak to other, uh, each other, uh, you know, as, as much as they should. Um, a lot of that is because, you know, the, the kind of traditional reason given or we prefer to have things in writing and all of that sort of stuff. But uh, we also kind of live in a somewhat disconnected world, the, you know, the the social media, you know, keyboard warriors, you know. And I think that that does affect the way we we uh, we work because uh, when, for example, I'm interacting with um, the, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna be respectful and call them, uh, you know, more senior members of my profession who are less social media inclined, less TikTok inclined, and so therefore their their brain hasn't quite been affected by the short algorithm, their attention is a little bit longer. You can have a very jovial, jo- you know, conversation with them and, and, and cut through a lot of the stuff and get through it. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that the younger generation is much more difficult to communicate with, but I think there's certainly a reluctance to actually speak on the phone and unlock a lot of, uh, a lot of that, uh, that. So, but, but you will have some lawyers who just do not want to communicate on the phone and you have to then uh, rely on, on the written word and email and unfortunately with email you know it's 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 one of the poorest form of uh, communication i find because uh, it can be it can be so easily misread so you you may have intended to mean something else but it is perceived or read by the recipient uh, in a, sometimes in a you know totally different light so you might have been trying to be helpful or or, or, or even cheerful and it comes across as sarcastic and aggressive. So uh, it's, it's difficult. But I think certainly lawyers um, don't pick up the phone uh, enough. Uh, part of that also is because, um, you know, going back to the previous point, you know, if it is a paralegal who's accepting the information, they would rather have everything documented so that they can then pass over that all of that whole docket of information to their to their supervising partner, all of it is written, as opposed to if they had a conversation with you and recorded a telephone attendance note, the most they could tell you is, well, okay, send it send it to me and then I'll I'll get my supervising partner to have a look at it, right? So uh, in that regard, there's not much they can do in terms of a conversation or being helpful anyway. So, um, but I find certainly, like I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So, um, at the moment, there's a lot of uh, news about the firm called Axiom uh, Ins uh, because they're being investigated uh, or some of their partners are being investigated by the SRA. And I was dealing with the refinance, the outgoing lenders, usual solicitor is Axiom. And uh, I asked the incoming uh, lender, I picked up the phone to her and I said, look, outgoing lenders, this firm, this is the firm that's acting for them. Would you accept an undertaking uh, from them? To redeem the the mortgage and what have you, and the incoming lenders lister said, uh, no. Given the current investigation, given the current uncertainty, uh, we won't. And so I then got in touch with the outgoing lender and I said, this is the issue. This is what the incoming lenders lister has said. Could you appoint a new uh, solicitor? Uh, and you know that 
if we were to do it by way of email exchange, I think that would have gone on for a few days, uh, finally ending up, you know, in the outcome that we could have just achieved in, you know, you know, probably a three minute conversation. So to your, to, to, to repeat the point, I don't think enough uh, conversations happen between solicitors. No, that's, that's very helpful. Um, interesting. I've got I've got another question for you, which is probably a bit different. But um, is there anything you any any questions you had on any of that, Mark? No, no. I think it's all fair enough. What uh, Tara is saying, it's all the communication is key uh, on all these uh, matters. And like I said right at the start, when you know a solicitor and you get on with that solicitor, it makes it such a better process for the customer. Um, so. It's really important for people not just to look at fees and who's charging the most or the least or whatever it may be. It's what fits best for your transaction and the the journey you want to go on, really. So, um, yeah, I think the communication is key. Just, yeah, I, I, in my just, experience. Yeah, I just want to add Sorry. a quick point about that. That you know, that, that point about relationship and fees is is quite an interesting one because I think we we were um maybe five seven years ago you know we were at a point where uh, legal services was treated uh, at least you know from my perspective legal services was treated as a commodity and so which whoever was giving you the cheapest fee that's the lawyer that yeah. you would go to but i think people then realized that well i'm i feel like i'm just a number in a factory and i'm not really getting the attention that i want uh, and yeah. with some of the clients that I've got trusted advisor status with, we'll usually have a fixed fee, especially on a refinance. Um, we'll have a fixed fee. And where we, I find that, okay, well, I've had to work a little bit harder on that matter. I'll then go and sit down with the client and have a pint or something and say, look, this is where I was having, I was struggling with on, on these sort of things. And this is how I think you and your team can improve so that I can improve what how I do things and how quickly I do things and therefore I can more easily stick to the fee that we've agreed. Uh, otherwise, you know, a few more transactions down the line, I'm going to have a chat with you and say, I'm going to need to increase my fee because you're making me work a lot harder, right? But it's only if you have that relationship, you can be frank in that way. If you're just a number and you're just a supplier and there's no relationship, um, the only thing that the uh, the, the 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 lawyer can do really is just bump up the fees because they don't know whether they're gonna uh, recover the fees on the next transaction and so on and so forth. Makes 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 complete sense because I I know in the past where maybe I'd paid a little less on legal side I regretted it afterwards. Um, so yeah, it's definitely about having the right person for the for the job that's actually going to help to make the the drawdown process as as little uh, or as less stressful as possible. Mm. Um, yeah. Brilliant. I had one last thing I just want to ask about in terms of just uh, as as just before we draw to a close, in terms of what you've seen in terms of joint venture structuring um, and where you're bringing investors in. Quite often, we have to come up with more creative structures to get deals across the line, simply just to get the numbers to work in this environment where vendor expectations are still quite high. Um, what are the sort of things you're perhaps seeing more of? On the legal side or you're seeing more kind of appetite for kind of yep you know as a lender uh, or a rep representative lender you're happy to kind of to go with certain types of structures so what are you seeing that works well and what are you seeing that doesn't work so well so that could be anything with regards to vendor financing or where you've got joint venture where somebody's bringing the asset and then you're having to refinance 
or take out some borrowing based on the on that unencumbered asset, even though the actual borrower or the the main party may not be the asset holder. Tell us a little bit about the sort of things that you've seen that have worked and which sort of things are are becoming more and more difficult to do when it comes to development. I think certainly the um, mainly driven by the vendor's um, price expectation, which hasn't yet adjusted to where the market is currently. When we're in September 2023 and the market is adjusting, uh, it is becoming more of a buyer's market. Um, it's it's uh, the, the vendors haven't quite adjusted their price expectation yet. So buyers are having to be much more creative in terms of how they structure the deal because cost of, if you look at development, cost of, you know, construction has gone up. Uh, stamp duty has always been, you know, expensive. So certain deals just don't stack because the, the you know, once the, the, mainly because of the price expectation. So one of the ways you can, you can hedge that is, as you've mentioned, you know, vendor finance or deferred consideration is, is one. Uh, you could do it by way of an overage uh, where you say, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you the amount that you want, but will pay you if we hit our certain GDV at the back end. Um, so, and then the, the the joint venture with the landowner itself, where, for example, the landowner transfers the property into the uh, SPV, limited company, the development company, and then the the investor slash developer is providing uh, perhaps some, some uh, uh, certainly providing the expertise, but also providing maybe some capital um, in terms of actual funds to develop the property out. Um, so the structures that I've seen in the last few uh, months, maybe a year, uh, is the deferred consideration vendor finance. That's very, very common. So what would happen is, as an example, let's say you're buying a property for a million pounds and um, the vendor only wants, let's say, 200,000 pounds upfront and is willing to wait for the other 100,000 uh, once you've completed the development. So that 800,000 gets put into a loan agreement uh, and uh, and maybe with a charge on the property by way of security and then gets paid off when either the property is developed and refinanced or sold off uh, at, the, at the back end of that development. Um, now, uh, if you're raising um, finance to fund the, the development, for example, so a development finance lender will want usually a first charge and so the... Yeah the vendor's charge will become a second charge. And I, I've seen uh, uh, lenders, you know, quite happy with that arrangement, so long as there's a deed of priority or deed of subordination in place to make sure that the development lender is still the, the head honcho, so to speak. They have the first charge. Um, yeah. So that's quite that's quite common. I've seen uh, pure contractual joint venture agreements, for example, uh, a old uh, building in Hampstead, um, it could become flats, but the old owner who's now in the 80s, not ready in the, it doesn't really have the energy to go through the project. Uh, the developer comes along and say, look, we'll enter into a joint venture agreement. We'll do all the works, we'll convert it, we'll fit it up, all the rest of it, and then we'll manage the sales at the back end, and then we'll give you uh, the, the the price. What sometimes also call as a assisted sale agreement sometimes, but uh, it can be a collaboration agreement or a joint venture agreement. So where there's no transfer of the land per se into an SPV. So it's just a contractual arrangement. The land stays with the uh, current owner, the developer adds value to the property and then sells it on and then divvies up the uh, profits at the, at the back end. Uh, there's some benefit in that because they reduces the friction costs, the transaction costs uh, by when you transfer it into an SPV, there are some uh, triggers for tax depending on how it's structured. Uh, and then yeah. the overage is, is something else that I see quite often 
um, and even an overage. Sorry, the, just before I move on, the 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 joint venture uh, agreement slash collaboration agreement um, that does require the developer or the investor to fund a lot of those costs because you won't be able to raise finance on it. Although having said that, I have seen uh, I have worked on a transaction where. Um, I, I, very briefly, I mentioned the example. So um, the person who referred the client to me was working on the neighbor's property. Um, and he uh, is a investor himself, is a landlord himself, but he also has got a construction company. And the construction company was effectively splitting this land and creating a new property in the back garden, in fact, and was friendly with the neighbor. The neighbor's saying, you know, what are you guys doing? What are the values and what have you? And then the neighbor then asked the contractor now said, could you do the same thing for me? And so the contractor's like, yeah, that's fine. So when I arranged uh, development finance, we split the property and then got the planning for it. Uh, or, or rather we got the, we did the split at the point of refinance, we got the planning on it first and then split, created the, raised the development finance. Uh, but it's the same, same owner who uh, will own the property, raise the development finance and the contractors only just getting a contractor's uh, uh, JCT contract but with a plus yeah. to it, with a bonus to it, because he had gotten the planning uh, issued and helped to structure the deal and what have you. So that's a pure contractual joint venture, uh, and there's no security, you know, being changed hands in that regard. And then the third is yeah. the overage that I mentioned, where um, you you um, it, you know you pay a, an uplift in the purchase price to the vendor once the development project is complete and it's been sold because. At the starting of the transaction, you can't you can't quite agree on the numbers, and so we say, look, I'll pay you the lower figure, but if I if my GDV hits the higher figure, then I'll pay you the difference. So that's uh, quite common, and a lot of lenders will accept that. Um, yeah, it's uh, I would say generally a lot of lawyers, including seasoned ones like me, don't really prefer overage because they're 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 um, very easy to get wrong. They're highly litigious and it usually involves large sums of money. So therefore it's high risk. Uh, and, and some yeah. lenders don't like it as well because uh, it means that there might be a further payment due. And if it's not, it needs to be released by the vendor and all of that sort of stuff. So it makes it a little bit more complex. So some lenders don't don't like it. I'm not saying all lenders, but some lenders don't like it. So those are a few things that I've seen. And certainly in the current climate, um, as we are still adjusting from a, from a seller-driven market to a buyer-driven market during this transition, still creative deals are, I think, required. Once we are fully into a buyer's market, and we don't know whether we'll, we'll definitely get there, but if we do get into a fully buyer-driven market, then I think you can just dictate, as a buyer, you can just dictate whatever your price is, and then the seller usually will need to just accept it, and you won't need a creative uh, structure per se in that in that type of transaction. Fantastic. I think that's an excellent overview of some of the creative strategies you're seeing. I think we could do a whole episode on creative strategies alone. I know you've done a lot of work in this space as well, Tarek. We've discussed various deal structures in the past as well. And, uh, you know, I've got a, a couple of conversations lined up, which I think I should probably follow up with you on as well. But that's mm. been that's been really, really helpful, a really um, uh, information-packed episode with some really, really um, uh, great input. So thank, thank you for that. Um, I think we're coming coming towards an end here, but if anyone wants to follow up with Tarek, um, we'll, we'll leave his um, details probably in the show notes as well. But do you want to just say a little bit about how people can get in touch with you, Tarek? 
Yeah, if you just go onto my website, www.tarikmubarak.com, that'll be the easiest way to reach out to me. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly active on Messenger and WhatsApp and email, so that'll be the best way to reach out to me. Fantastic. Great, great. Any uh, any final marks, remarks from you, Mark? No, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting hearing um, what Tarek's saying from, from his angle because I come from a slightly different uh, angle, but I think the messages definitely align um, the communication and information provided quickly and efficiently is key to every transaction. Um, and everybody sitting off the same hymn sheet makes it a whole lot easier. So um, thank you very much, Terry. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank Fantastic. You. Great. So if anyone's got any more questions that they want to send us offline, um, anything you want to hear more about or dig into in more depth in future episodes, please do let us know. But thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, that's all for now. Thank you. That concludes another episode of Show Me The Money podcast, Unlocking Property Finance. Connect with us on social media where we share additional tips, resources and behind the scenes insights. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions or topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Until next time, keep exploring, keep learning and keep making those smart investment moves. This has been Show Me The Money, Unlocking Property Finance.